everyone, and welcome to another installment of FSW Conversations, brought to you by Fashion Strategy Weekly, which looks to bring practical, strategic, and research-based insights to leaders in the fashion and luxury industries. I am Jessica Quillen, co-publisher of Fashion Strategy Weekly and co-founder of Luxury Strategy Agency, It's a Working Title. In this edition of FSW Conversations, I'm talking to Kate Sheldon, CEO of Fashioneering LLC and the Fashioneering Lab. Kate is a luxury fashion industry veteran with a career spanning over three decades. She has influenced an array of iconic brands, including Chanel, Dior, Prada, Moschino, La Perla, and many others, and is regularly featured in prestigious publications like Women's Wear Daily and others. So Kate, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Just to start, I'd love for you to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about how you got into the fashion industry. Yeah, sure. Thank you for having me, Jessica. I really appreciate it. I'm very honored to speak with you today. So um, let's see how I got into it. I think like a lot of people, I was just a little kid who... The, the seed of fashion, I guess the, the dreams kind of hit me early. And um, I really, when I started out as a very young person, I, I knew that I wanted to, I, I say I knew, I thought I wanted to be in some kind of international business. I had no idea what that meant other than it was going to possibly allow me to travel. And I had an interest in architecture, but what I didn't have was frankly, the some of the, the skill set that would be needed to be a successful architect. And the doodles in my notebook were not of buildings, they were of dresses. So at some point around the age of 17, um, I had a professor point out, you know, maybe maybe you should go into the fashion industry. So I grew up in Texas, which is where I am still based. And there was a designer named Victor Costa. I say designer kind of in quotations because anyone who knows of his story, it was a little... Was he a designer? Was he really a merchandiser? He was sort of famed as the knockoff king. But what he was, was Texas-based. And so my my young self um, decided, ooh, okay, he's from Texas, I'm from Texas, I'm going to go to school and get a job working for him. So, um, you know, I I guess I'm a a big fan of manifestation. (laughs) And so be careful what you manifest, manifest big things for yourself. Um, I did end up starting there and I worked as a designer for several years as the you know lowest designer on the totem pole, loved absolutely every minute of it. I didn't anticipate that companies go out of business because I'm at that time, you know, 23, didn't really even, you know, you don't think of those things, but sadly that is what happened to that brand. And I found myself in a part of the country that at this time, NAFTA, we were, this is sort of pre-NAFTA, but we were evolving into NAFTA. So the manufacturing that was happening down here was kind of drying up and so were the opportunities. So I was married at the time, needed to stay in Dallas and to make a very, very long story short, I decided to hit up the CEO of Neiman Marcus and said, I had this idea. Could I come and talk to him? He let me come talk to him. He said no to my idea, but he said, I really think you might've been a decent designer, but I think you're a really good merchant. And I was like, I don't know what that is, but I'm unemployed. So let's, let's see what that path, you know, brings me. So I became a merchant with Neiman Marcus Group for about a dozen years. And my area of expertise there, I was in um, predominantly in the French collections and um, Neiman's would call it the couture department. Obviously it's not a couture, it was ready to wear, but most of the European brands and I bought across different classifications um, and did that for a dozen years before I launched my own consultancy. And um, then I guess that sort of leads us to here. <laughs> so, and, and I love that. And, you know, one of the questions I have is just sort of, you know, that why you formed the fashioneering lab and, and kind of, you know, initially as you get into that, what about your experience at Neiman Marcus kind of shaped the way you sort of envisioned setting up the fashioneering lab and, you know, kind of why, why, why did you get the inspiration to take that particular? Oh, I love that question. So in short, so when I started consulting and I launched um, fashioneering in 2007, largely 
people would bring me in. We weren't using the term fractional at the time, but essentially like a fractional chief merchandising officer. And at times for smaller brands, it might've been like a fractional CEO, but really kind of bridging the gap because I, at that point had the experience of working in the design studio, but I also understood the finances of it. The business, this is a business. It's not, it's a creative business and where those two things meet. And that was a really interesting sweet spot because as you're aware, there are very different ways of working on the creative side and on the business side. And unfortunately, in my opinion and my experience, the fact that those are very siloed, that's where we run into problems. The right hand isn't always talking to the left hand or when they are, their calendars are off or they're, you know, you don't walk into a design studio at the beginning of the ideation and stage and say, where's my hero product? You know, that kind of kind of thing. There's a method to the madness in that. So I had been doing that for many years and one of the working with very well established heritage brands who knew me, candidly speaking, most of my portfolio or people who I was probably their buyer when I was at Neiman Marcus Group. So that was I was a known entity to them, but they would bring me in to sort of, you know, offer my area of expertise. But consistently, I would look around and notice I could do a lot of things, but you also had issues over here and over here and over here. And, you know, I think a lot of consultants feel this way, you know, people have paid you a premium to come in and solve a business problem, which 100% of the time ends up being, we need more sales, we need more revenue, but you cannot do it yourself, no matter who you are. And so what happens is, you know, ownership would ask me, well, who do you know who does this? Because I might've observed there's an opportunity, like who's your CFO or do you, who's, who's the chief technology officer? Could even be something like, who's who's the technical designer? Because you've got a great creative director, but we need a technical designer or PR, any number of things. So what they would do is they would say, well, who do you know? I go through my network, make a few you know recommendations and move on. But it still wasn't really optimal. And this had always been kind of a rock in my shoe that I was like, there's a there's a problem to solve for. Because I one of the things I found interesting was that was happening with well-established heritage brands. But it also happened with startups. Now, startups, it's sort of for a different reason. They don't have the budgets necessarily to go hire all the 50 people that they need so that they can hire one at a time. So uh, when COVID hit, like anybody else, you know, I was sort of looking around and seeing so many different changes and big seismic shifts in our industry. Um, in my opinion, the entire model, there's, there's so much of it that is broken if we wanted to move forward. And looking at sort of my kind of to answer your question looking at my experience with Neiman Marcus I looked at where my successes were 100% of the time I could attribute them to breaking down silos and reaching out across and saying you know I I not for nothing I don't know jack about how to build you know a certain type of database or something like this so I would just grab the you know who's the CTO let me call him and ask him I have this interesting idea on how we can do something to write our orders better that might drive myself through do you have the manpower that you could dedicate to help me build something like that out or at the same time working with you know you have a great idea on a brand that you really want to develop in all 42 stores but there's no way I can do that if I don't get windows so I got to get the head of visual on the phone and see how can I get in on all that and what I noticed was this was not the normal way of working within Neiman Marcus. So I was not really good at, well, just sitting in a silo. I was like, well, who do we need on board? And if whatever your initiative is, the reality is you needed people, you needed buy-in from everyone in the company. You needed excitement from everyone in the company. So kind of taking that idea or that learning 
and looking at consultancy, adding so many different issues, we are looking at needing to become more sustainable, dare I say, circular and the dream regenerative, right? We need to be embracing new technologies. We need to be more inclusive. We need to accommodate new work styles. I've been working remotely since 2007, but a whole lot of the world just figured out the, the pros and cons of it four years ago. And so you see shifts there and so many different things. So I set about with the lab and thought, all right, what if I'm going to try and solve kind of all those things, which is a little bit of a big undertaking, kind of a lofty idea, but I said, I'm going to imagine myself as the CEO of an imaginary enterprise brand today. And what do I need to move forward and who do I need in those roles? So I sort of set about like from ground zero, who's my general counsel? It's going to be Beth Henry's. Who's going to handle, you know, marketing? Who's going to handle design, but design from a point of view that is baking in sustainable materials and processes and things, store development, e-commerce, how do you become a B Corps? You, know, you name it, sort of all the things. And so I set out and frankly recruited a bunch of other consultants, agencies, designers, kind of preferred partners, and really formalized a network. And that became the Fashionering Lab, which is sort of a hub and spoke model. Because the other thing I wanted to solve for was going back to that early part of my, um, of my long-winded answer was that when I would make those referrals to whoever my client was and say, oh, yeah, you, you need content strategy. You should talk to my friend Jessica and then kind of move on. They would then meet you and they would repeat what they were needing to do. And they spend all this time doing it. And I was like, well, we're wasting time. It would be faster in a hub and spoke model where I said, Jessica, here's the client. Here's what they're working on. These are what their issues are. This is their timeline. This is the budget. These are the other five projects they're working on. These are the other people so that when they meet with these other spokes, they kind of hit the ground running. And so that was sort of the, the idea behind it. And two years in, it's, it's, it's moving pretty well. I love that. And, you know, can you just dive a little bit deeper into that? Because I sort of love that sort of hub and spoke model, because I think it obviously, I mean, we all know as consultants, sort of our, our biggest enemy um, besides, you know, kind of vague payment details is scope creep. And, you know, one of the yes. things I love about your hub and spoke model is is that it makes things really clear. It really kind of yep. sets, you know, kind of what what needs to be done when it needs to be done. Um, and so just to dive a little bit deeper, I'm really curious in terms of like, how do you sort of, when it comes to sort of, you know, looking to define the work, how do you help luxury executives sort of approach complex problems and kind of break them down and, and solve them so that you can then know who to bring in and kind of what, what problems? No, great, great question. Um, I mean, really, frankly, through a lot of dialogue, you know, when they, when they come to me, I'll say, you know, what are your pain points? And very often they'll say, I need X. I need to bring someone in who's going to take over our wholesale and expand it because we've been in these five different showrooms and it's not working. And I will say, welcome to the tough love. Are you sure the issue is the showroom or is the issue actually the branding? Is the issue that you've chosen a lane that is overcrowded? Is the issue the collection itself? So really kind of, I will dig into like, what are your pain points? 100% of the time, they find a million ways to say they need more revenue. That's the pain point. But really digging into, okay, what are the issues? What is the budget? What is the timeline? And then really figuring out, okay, here's what we can do first. And then we do this. And then we do this. So we kind of develop an overarching strategy. And I understand with all the executives and residents, my designers at large and other preferred partners, I know what they do and I know what they charge for different things. 
So I can kind of map out with the client an entire journey so that they understand, all right, we're going to start here. You know, you're, am I going to spend $100,000 completely, you know, overhaul my little baby brands? e-commerce first day out? Probably not, but you might be doing that three months from now. First thing, we're probably going to revisit like your positioning, your branding, the collection itself. Maybe it's a PR issue, but um, so that's really kind of, I, at first, just really visiting with them, digging down to what the real issues are and balancing that with what their resources and timeline to kind of figure out who the best people are in the best order of events. Oh, that's amazing. The other aspect I love about your sort of approach to sort of uh, fashion consulting, if you will, um, is sort of your focus on community, especially within the fashion Earring lab itself. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and kind of why you created that sort of more community centric model towards, um, yeah, I mean, I think some of it just in simple terms probably boils down to my personality. I'm very much a team oriented person. I know that sounds cheesy, but it's true. I, I, I completely believe that fashion is a team sport. And if you can leave egos at the door, we can accomplish really great things. Um, but the other thing was when I was looking at again, sort of solving for all these pain points. One of the pain points consultants have is they can be, when you're out of the corporate environment, sometimes you're out of conversations that you need to be in and you need to have that other point of view. Let's just grab something today. Every, we're all talking about AI and its implications. So when you're an outside consultant, you need to make sure that you're talking to a lot of different voices and getting a lot of different perspectives so that you can make the best decisions for your clients and that. So I really wanted to create an environment where we get together regularly twofold to share knowledge, because again, it's like, we're all in our individual silo. Now let's talk about whatever the issue or opportunity is from these different angles. But also I wanted, the reason community was so important to me was when projects come through and the majority of the work we do are bespoke projects, I need everyone to know each other. I need everyone to already be vibing. We're not going to waste time gelling when the client is ready to go. We are like, I, I know it's cheesy, I guess, as I am, but we, I use the kind of Avengers metaphor a lot that these are sort of like the fashion Avengers where sometimes you just need one or two, but they all know each other and they all understand each other's strengths. And so I just saw benefits in that as well. I love that. So you describe your philosophy as creative thinking, fashioneering. What does that concept mm. mean to you and why is it important to kind of what you're looking to build and bring to clients? Yeah. I mean, I always say sort of it's um, it's where those two things meet. That's always been my favorite sweet spot is where the creative side of the business and sort of what we think of maybe as perhaps a more analytical kind of meet together. And, you know, other people might refer to it as sort of design thinking, but it's really kind of, again, bridging that gap. It's like you've got your creative mind over here and we're all capable of both, I believe. It's just a muscle that we need to train. That might be a little controversial, but you've got your creative side over here. You've got your analytical side over here. But in the middle, when you meld those two together in our industry, that's where the magic happens. I love that. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Kate. I really yeah, appreciate it. Thank you. It. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk a little bit about the Fashionering Lab and congratulations on all the things you guys are doing.